Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Break It Down for Brackets podcast. Today, we get to talk to Dr. Matt Hahn. He comes out of Berkeley Springs, and he is running for Congress, U.S. Congress, in District 2 in West Virginia. He's coming out of a healthcare point of view, and he has an extremely compelling discussion. I, I barely did any talking. It was amazing. Um, he, he literally checked every box, every question I had, he answered before I had a chance to ask them. Um, he has a lot of passion for what he's doing. He sees the ability to change things. He sees the ability to have both sides of the aisle working together. Um, let's listen to what Dr. Matt Hahn has to say. Dr. Matt Hahn, thank you very much for being on the Bright, uh, Break It Down for Bracken's podcast. You're welcome, Kevin. Nice to be here. Thanks. So let's just jump off on the same question I ask every single person at the beginning of all of these is tell me about your background, both professionally, personally. Um, did, I, if I recall, you're also in a running group. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Running yeah. running's a very big part of uh of my life um you know i guess i'll i'll tell the matt Hahn story and how it leads up to uh becoming a uh a candidate for congress um because it's it's really a thread that um it goes a lot of different places but it all comes together so um i'm a family physician i live in berkeley springs west virginia i've been living here for 20 years um I have a practice, a family medicine practice in Hancock, Maryland, uh, a wonderful community-based practice. Um, but, uh, and, and now I'm running for the United States Congress in West Virginia's second district. But none of this, none of this should have happened. Um, the story, I guess, starts a long time ago. In, uh, in the 1980s, I was in a, uh, a great rock and roll band. Uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. I grew up in uh, outside of Washington, D.C. And uh, when I was 18, I joined uh, a rock and roll band and thought I was going to be, you know, the, the idea was to be Mick Jagger. Um, and uh, thankfully, I met my wife, um, who I think was, you know, probably only interested in me because I sang in a band. And um, uh, because of that band, um, I went from being, I think, an uninformed uh, kid to um, somebody who traveled the country, who met lots of interesting people, who did things that were very much unlike anything I had done uh, before and made a lot of good music um, and, and just uh, changed my perspective about things. Also, um, I was the manager of that band. It was very much a DIY, do-it-yourself uh, kind of effort, and it, it taught me a lot about independent thinking. Um, but the band broke up, uh, and so I, I didn't go on to become uh, Mick Jagger. The band broke up in 1988 or 89. Uh, I had been going to school. Well, I had dropped out of college, uh, much to my parents' chagrin. I'm, I'm one of five children, the youngest of five. Um, three siblings who went to Ivy League schools. Um, 
a psychologist, two attorneys, and I was a college dropout. And, um, uh, but I was, uh, because I was managing the band, I was taking some business classes on the side. And because of that, um, I guess one of my side gigs when I was in the band, you know, we all had day gigs. And one of my side gigs was managing an entertainment company in Washington, DC, real interesting company that provided um, all sorts of performers and entertainers for special events, including, you know, anything from kids' birthday parties to presidential fundraisers. Um, so I, you know, was working in, in business sort of on the side of the band. Uh, but when the band uh, broke up, you know, I had to think of something new to do and um, went back to college, not really sure what I was going to do um, and really struggled for a little while. And then, you know, just struck upon the idea of, uh, of medical school, which is, it's, it's a long story, um, but, uh, but decided to go to medical school really because of a, um, uh, a family uh, problem that developed, which was, um, well, a challenge, let's say. Uh, I was thinking of actually going to chiropractor school, and my wife and I uh, were going to move away, but um, she has a, a daughter um, who had been living with um, her husband, my wife's first husband, um, and she had come to live with us uh, in, I guess, around 1992. And because of that, we didn't want to leave the Washington, D.C. area uh, for a while we had and so all of a sudden I had uh, some extra time on my hands um, and decided well um, maybe I've got time I'll go to medical school <laughs> and uh, went to medical school and um, always thought about being a family physician I was really really blessed I got a scholarship um, for medical school called the National Health Service Corps and the National Health Service Corps paid for my entire medical education, um, but it required that I go into a primary care specialty and that I had to pay back four years in an underserved community. And that's how I got to Hancock, Maryland um, and Berkeley Springs. Um, my wife's family is from Pittsburgh. My family's from the DC area. I had to find an underserved community that made sense for us and there was a small community health center in Hancock, and that's where I started working. Um, what year was that? That was 2000. So I got out of medical school in 97, did a residency in York, Pennsylvania, um, and started my professional career as the medical director of a community health center in Hancock. And, you know, it was, it was really interesting because back then, Doctors were being taught that politics and business was not something that we did, that, that uh, practicing medicine was, was pure, and that, that our job was to focus on patient care, and, and that was it. And, um, and healthcare was pretty good back then, so it seemed like that's what we could do. Um, you know, your biggest challenge back then was trying to diagnose and treat patients and how to keep them healthy. Um, 
and I really got involved in that. I was head over heels uh, involved in um, community health. Uh, I'm a runner, um, and uh, I've been running since, well, since I was a teenager. And believe it or not, one of the things that helped us decide that Hancock was a, a good place to work was the CNO Canal towpath. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's the world's greatest running trail, and um, when I saw that, I was I was sold. Um, and so, I was convinced back then when when you know the big concern was how do you keep people well, and um, I was convinced that what we needed to do back then was just teach people to take better care of themselves. That the big problem in medicine was that we were disease based. And um, I was really struck by the fact that all day long as a family physician, I was taking care of people who had preventable conditions that, that really what drove my practice, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, these were diseases that were rooted in unhealthy lifestyles. And I thought, well, the big problem in medicine is that we're really just taught to take care of sick people we've got to figure out how to keep people well. So I started community health programs. Um, we did something called the Health Olympics, where we were giving people um, two and three month challenges to, to choose exercise goals, um, eating goals, weight loss goals. And um, I, I, thought, I thought that the answer to everything that was wrong with us was, was in doing that. And it was a lot of fun, but it was also very educational. Um, educational in the fact that I learned um, it is very, very difficult to get people to change. <laughs> and um, it, it the first year that I did that program, we had about 100 people sign up and God, it was amazing. People did great. But every year, and I did that for, I think, 10 years, every year you'd get more people to um, participate. And the more people that participated, the worse my data got because you know the first hundred I guess that signed up were the people that were really motivated and then after that it was people that wanted a free t-shirt and uh, it it uh, it was a real challenge but it was a real eye-opener for me too um, going along in um, I guess around 2004 a really interesting thing happened to me it turned out one of my patients um, a gentleman named Jolton Jim McCoy who you may or may not have heard of, um, who had been a patient of mine since I started, uh, and up till that point had been a, just a, a fellow with high blood pressure and smoke, um, uh, I found out that he was a country music legend, that this guy, Jolton Jim, had a place called the Troubadour. The Troubadour is this great honky-tonk in Berkeley Springs, and, um, and Jim opened this place in the 1980s. Uh, but Jim was famous. He's very famous in um, country music for being credited with discovering Patsy Cline. And for four years, I didn't know anything about this. He was just a guy who, you know, I took care of every few months. Um, but uh, I went out to the Troubadour and saw this amazing honky-tonk that Jim ran and all the great music that was being made out there. And all of a sudden, it reawakened that, that rock and roll guy. Um, and 
I started going on stage and, and singing country music. And, uh, and Jim and I became best friends. And, and Jim was in his 70s at that time. And, you know, the last person that I should have been best friends with. Um, but uh, we, made, we made an album together of his music. Um, I performed uh, in his old red spangled suit many times performing his songs. And uh, for my efforts, I was inducted into the West Virginia Country Music Hall of Fame. Wow. But, but also, I got to know the people of, of West Virginia who, you know, I grew up in, in Montgomery County, Maryland, in the D.C. area, um, you know, uh, privileged, wealthy people. And I come out here, and, and at first, I guess it was a culture shock. Um, but as a physician, you know, I get, I get invited into people's lives in such a deep level. And I got to know a whole community so different from me. And, and, and so many people with my background don't get to know um, people uh, in this way. And, I, you know, I fell in love with these folks. And then at the Troubadour, you meet, you know, a whole new group of people. And it was, it was wonderful. I mean, you know, and, and to see people at this bar of every background, rubbing shoulders, you know, getting together over music, over food, over beer. Um, it was it was joyful, but it was also an incredible education um, for me about um, just you know a, a whole side of humanity that I hadn't met before. And and um, and uh, so anyway, part part of my education um, going along in healthcare, you know, in the later knots you know, go, coming into around 2007 um, and eight, all of a sudden you're starting to see that healthcare is really becoming a different animal. That rather than trying to figure out how to take care of, you know, patients, how to diagnose and treat them, you're trying to figure out how do you get people care in a system that's breaking, that's breaking down. I remember, I don't know, it was 2006 or 2007, seeing patients who, because they didn't have insurance, they were starting to do really things that, that just blew my mind. I had people who had you know, skin abscesses and they were operating on themselves because they didn't have insurance or operating on themselves. They were opening up their own abscesses. They, you know, they were taking a knife to their own abscesses because they, knew either they didn't have insurance or they knew even with insurance if they went to the er they were going to get this incredible bill right and and so you, you start dealing with with healthcare in a whole new way um in 2009 we opened our my practice so um we opened riverbend family medicine uh so i had a, a private practice um and and we started doing things um well, differently, uh, we you know we asked the question: How can we give patients the best care possible? Um, but also, how can we leverage the newer technologies that we're developing? I had a software company um, that uh, developed the uh, an EMR, the electronic medical record, um, because I thought that was one of the keys to fixing healthcare was a good electronic medical record. Um, but also different ideas about how you can give patients a good experience when they come 
when they interact with the medical system. Um, how could we stay on time? How could we get people in same day when they're sick? How can we um, keep them well? Um, and and so so we had our our little practice that was kind of uh, uh, a playground to to figure out how we could do things differently from the rest of the medical system. This small hive of innovation. Yeah, that was it. It was, um, we, especially with our electronic medical record, how could we leverage that technology, but also how could we staff the place differently um, so that, you know, uh, again, patients could have a whole different relationship with healthcare. And so what we were seeing was as, as time went on, things were really, really falling apart in the greater healthcare world. But our practice um, was just giving great care. And, and um, I guess one of the uh, real lessons that we learned um, was that while the rest of healthcare is going towards you know, large corporations, and I don't depersonalizing because everybody has an electronic record so you can go anywhere it's transportable um, what we found was that the most important thing in people's health care was a personal connection that um, we're in a community where I've taken care of patients now for 20 years and as much as what I know as a physician and, and how good of a diagnostician I am and the great technology that we have, um, what determines how well a patient does is um, how well a physician knows them as a human being and how much um, me and my staff, and my staff is probably just a, as important as me, how much they care about a patient. And um, we've gotten to a point where our patients are um, really family. I, I think of, um, of patients almost in the image of my parents and my grandparents. Um, in fact, it, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, my mom died in 2002. So I became, you know, working physician in 2000. And in 2001, she became ill with uh, melanoma. And I watched over a year's time as she, you know, was, was ill and then died as the, the medical system did not do well by my dear mother. Um, it just didn't seem to care. Uh, it was disorganized and, and just sort of, you know, booted her around. And I was really dismayed that my own mom um, was treated such a way by the healthcare system where I, I came into healthcare thinking, man, I'm a physician in the United States of America, the greatest healthcare system in the world. And it's going to take care of my mom and it didn't. Um, and so one of the things, one of the things that that did for me was help me focus as a physician where I said, I'm going to look at each of these patients in sort of in honor of my mom. And I'm going to take care of each of them in the way that I wish my mom had been taken care of. Um, I'm going to make sure that they get good information, that someone's always looking out for them. Um, and so one of the things that we say about our practice is that we take care of our patients the way we would want our own family members taken care of um, when they go to the doctor. And that was, you know, that was based on the experience uh, of my mom. And um, 
I guess another thing that really shaped me as a physician uh, was a mentor uh, of mine in medical school. I went to GW uh, in Washington. And first year of medical school, 1993, there was a great new class called the Practice of Medicine. There was the recognition that doctors were great technocrats, but you know, I guess our bedside manner sucked. <laughs> and so there was this practice, there was this new course where we were paired with community physicians. Um, and we, you know, we, we were trained how to talk to patients, how to interview them. Um, I guess, you know, the, the bottom line, how to have bedside manner. And we had this wonderful uh, physician, a guy named Stan Talpers. Um, Stan was probably in his 70s at the time. He was a community physician in Washington. And um, we just spent all sorts of time uh, talking to, to Stan over the years. And first year, one day we were practicing interviewing with him. And, and afterwards, we were just sitting and chatting. And one of the students says to Stan, um, hey, this is all great. You know, this is great what we're doing, but this is all about what, you know, we practice what's um, what to say when things are going well. But, you know, what I'm really scared about is what do we say when things have gone badly? And, and when this other student said that, I was like, yeah, what do we say? Man, <laughs> I have no idea. I was in a rock and roll band. <laughs> what do I say to people when things have gone badly? And it was a great moment. Stan, um, you know, is this wizened physician. He had glasses, beautiful, crisp white jacket. And, and he, he's so thoughtful. And he's, at first he says, well, I'm not really sure what to tell you. You know, every situation's different. And I was like, ah, oh, that's no good. And then he, he you know, he, he catches himself and he says, I'll tell you, this is, this is what you have to, this is what you have to do. I'm, I'm not sure what I say when I get there, but we got to be there. You know, when, when we're called to that moment, it can be so awkward. It can be so imposing. It can be emotional. It could be scary. And a lot of doctors run the other way. They get someone else to do it. They get a nurse. Our job is to be there with that patient. And maybe they won't remember what you said, um, but they'll remember that you were there with them. And this turned out to be such a great message for me um, because those moments as a, as a small town community physician, you know, happened all the time. Um, you know, difficult moments, people getting ill, you know, having to impart difficult uh, information about a diagnosis, you know, a cancer diagnosis or someone dying. And um, whenever I thought about what I should say or what I should do, it was, I got to be there. I got to be there with that person. And, and it, it, it's almost turned into, well, it's turned into a lot of amazing stories, that, that lesson. Um, so, so you've got these various threads coming together. Um, Matt Hahn, the performer, Matt Hahn, the community physician who's taking care of patients in a broken system that's becoming more and more difficult. Um, uh, the guy who's, who's trying to be there for his patients and looks at them like they're each his mom or his, or his grandmother. Um, the technology side, um, and, and then you hit the, the early, you know, 2010 or so, and it, it really starts to get so difficult to take care of patients that I'm starting to get frustrated. Um, well, it means that a patient comes in 
And uh, the simplest uh, example is a, a diabetic comes in <clears throat> and it's not hard to diagnose them with diabetes. And we have all sorts of new therapies. Oh my God, you know, probably 10 oral medications, 10 different types of insulin, new injectable therapies. I mean, the world is an amazing place where, where in the last 20 years, what we can do for diabetic patients is miraculous. And yet, I can't get any of that for them. I try to, you know, I try to prescribe a medicine, oh, that's not covered. Or my copay is too high. Or I can't get testing supplies. Or the bureaucracy to get testing supplies is so overwhelming that it takes my nurses hours to wade through um, to get people uh, their medications affordably, we have to fill out, you know, reams of forms. And it becomes more and more obvious to me as we go on that it's becoming impossible for me to, to fulfill my oath. Um, and, you know, and that's when the nation was really starting to talk about health care reform. And of course, um, President Obama gets Obamacare enacted. Um, and it didn't get better. <laughs> and and I'm not uh, I'm not politically an opponent of Obamacare. You know, it's 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 a partisan issue, but that's not the way I look at it. It's did it fix healthcare? And it didn't. Um, and then going along, you know, another few years, and all of a sudden, the bureaucratic side of medicine starts to get so heavy-handed that, um, again, more than taking care of patients, we're just trying to figure out how to work around a system that seems like it is designed to keep us from taking care of our patients. So um, there's the notion of, of something called value-based payment. <laughs> so the, the, the question in healthcare for the past 25 years is how come American healthcare is so expensive. And when you study the quality of the care in the United States, it's not very good. Um, what's the answer to that? And, and there's this um, notion that the, the problem is fee-for-service medicine. The fact that, um, that I'm paid based on uh, every service that I provide. A surgeon is paid when he does a surgery. I'm paid when I do Example. Well, so so fee for service means I'm I'm paid for every service I provide. It means that I'm paid per um, appointment. Um, a surgeon is paid per surgery, and so the notion is, and this notion is incorrect, that um, because it's all it, we get paid for volume, that um, we're not paid for any sense of quality or value. And that's why American healthcare is high cost, low value. And out of that, uh, it is wrong, yes. <laughs> out of that narrative, well, the devil's in the details. So, so out of that narrative comes the notion, well, we will design something that we call, you know, broadly value-based payment, meaning that we're gonna come up with measures of value so for instance, if I'm taking care of a diabetic, what's the number one measure of, uh, of 
diabetes care. It's a test called the hemoglobin A1C. So that's, that's how we rate how someone is doing with their diabetes, uh, this, this numerical measure. And so, well, maybe instead of paying Dr. Han just for an appointment with a diabetic, what we'll do is we'll pay him based on his patient's hemoglobin A1Cs. And, and that way, and, and then we can even um, measure how much uh, Dr. Han's patients are costing the medical system. And then we can bring in value based on quality measures, cost, and we can come up with ways to pay Dr. Han based on those measures rather than just every appointment that he has. On paper, it sounds like a pretty interesting concept. Starting to lose me. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's starting to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, and let's just say, let's just say that I became more and more frustrated with the direction of healthcare. And more and more I felt like politics were invading my exam room, where I, I said that when I started practicing, we had been told as physicians that we were, we were above this, you know, this nasty task of, of politicking um, and, and business. We were, you know, we were there to take care of patients and to fulfill our oath. Well, it became apparent to me more and more that because of bad politics, I couldn't fulfill my oath that that because um, healthcare was not being fixed, and in fact it was just getting worse and worse, it was becoming impossible to do my job. And I thought harder and harder about this, and um, I wrote a book. <laughs> I thought it it I, I became so frustrated. I guess it was 2015 with the the course of, I guess, Obamacare and with politics, I thought, you know, my experience in my office is really so revealing because our office is, where, is so small that I see everything. Where most physicians today have gone in a very different direction, they now are employed by hospitals or health systems. And so they're shielded from what's happening on the ground. Whereas in our teeny little practice, I see everything, I hear everything, I know the nitty gritty details of the business, I know the nitty gritty details of the bureaucracy that we have to deal with both from a perspective of the government and the insurance companies. Um, I know a great deal about the technology because um, we use uh, an electronic medical chart that, that I helped design and it became obvious to me that there were certain things wrong in healthcare that weren't being discussed by the political system. And so I wrote a book about that, um, uh, Distracted, How Regulations Are Destroying the Practice of Medicine. Matt, this is all very disheartening and additionally <laughs> not understanding how the medical system truly works like when you say the the politics and the bureaucracy i'm imagining drug companies twisting the arms of people and who write policy to influence the votes of people in congress to say okay look if you're going to use this sort of health coverage it, it gets so deep yes 
you're running, I assume, my co-host is very rambunctious, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you're, you're running, I assume, to help truly develop healthcare reform because not only are you boots in the ground, but you have a very good perspective. Is, is that, because here's the deal, unless people are taking a six month or 12 month class on the understanding of the operations of healthcare, I don't know how you can understand it. It's just, I think so many f people have their hands in the pie. It's just amazingly, so cor maybe corrupt, I don't know. Is it the word? Corruptions, corruption is one side of it. So, um, so it's, it's interesting and it, and it took a long time for me to understand um, and, and understanding is only one part of it. That's the problem. So um, we're taught a model in, in medicine called patient-centered care. And so it's to look at healthcare in the perspective of a patient. What does this patient need? If I'm gonna build an appointment, a practice, a medical system, it's based upon, it's a, it's a pyramid with a patient at the top, and maybe I'm right there underneath that patient as the physician. So we should design a healthcare system that is meant to give patients the care that they need, and it should help me give patients that care. But there are two very big things that get in the way of that, and that is the healthcare industry and um, government regulation. And, um, and so I guess when you say the industry, maybe we're talking about um, insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. That's you know probably the two biggest parts of the industry Today, you could probably also throw in big, large health systems. And what, then there's... What's a health system? Like, does that make a well, so, so like, like, like Valley Health System in Winchester okay. has, you know, a whole no. bunch of parts where it used to be there was Winchester Hospital, and now it's Valley Health System, you know, that encompasses, I don't know, you know, six or seven different hospitals and all sorts okay. of specialties. So... Um, and then we have the, the politics of it where, where the argument is, well, um, we have to have a health system that is controlled by government, uh, you know, the, the single payer argument versus the, uh, I guess the free market argument. We need to let the industry, you know, run things that government is bad. We shouldn't let government be involved in healthcare, and so you, you you see the politics go off in these these this di traditional division. Um, so so we've got you know the Bernie Sanders of the world saying we should have a single payer system, and and then uh, a Republican argument would be no, we need to let um, you can't have government control things like that. The the industry needs to be in charge of things. Um, but when you look at healthcare. In reality, we've got problems on both sides. So when I when I look at that pyramid of the patient and me, um, there are two entities that get in between that patient and me, or get in the way of me giving you know that patient the care that they need. So I'll give you I'll give you some examples. So first of all, an insurance company. So the insurance company um, says that. Uh, only certain medications are approved. So Dr. Han 
we are um, we're measuring the quality of the care that you're giving. And so we're measuring the hemoglobin A1Cs and we wanna make sure if we're gonna pay you top dollar, you have to have low hemoglobin A1Cs for your patients. So- Low scores? Yeah, low scores. So the hemoglobin A1C should be under seven. Okay. And so you need to do everything that you can to make on average your patient's numbers low. Um, okay, well, I'm gonna prescribe a medication and all oh, that didn't work, I'm gonna have to prescribe a second medication. Well, that's not covered. Oh, okay. Well, let me look at a third medication. No, that's not covered. Um, okay, well, I guess we could try insulin. I, you know, a lot of patients don't like the idea of doing insulin injections, but well, that's not covered. <laughs> so, I'm seeing um, what's happening here. Or, or you know, even worse, um, Obamacare addressed a big issue. People didn't have insurance. And we thought that the answer was people need insurance. Well, the new policies have these huge deductibles. So we didn't, so we thought that insurance was the answer, but it turned out insurance, the devil's in the details. What kind of insurance? What does it cover? If it doesn't cover the medications um, that I can prescribe to take care of diabetes, it's not helping. If a patient has a huge deductible, well, Dr. Han, you prescribed that medicine, but I have a $5,000 deductible. I can't afford any of this. So here I am being chided that I don't give quality care. My hemoglobin A1Cs maybe are, are too high, and yet I'm blocked every avenue. So let's, so that's the industry side. Let's go to the government side. It's so busted. That is, Hello. <laughs> so this is, is already overwhelming how broken this is. Well, so that's, you know, and this, this is a, a, a just one tiny right. example. So let's go to the government side. So the government embraces um, this whole idea of, you know, data-driven quality. And so they really push this whole value-based care. They have a whole system that they call the quality payment program. Um, and well, let me, let me jump in first um, on how we get paid. And this is all determined by Medicare. This, um, uh, Medicare creates the rules that determine how I get paid. So let's say you go to a restaurant, you, you get a $75 dinner, you give them a credit card, it's done. An average appointment for me is probably about $75 from Medicare. Well, so Medicare says, we need to know exactly what's going on. We need data um, about what's going on in a doctor's office. So we can't just pay $75. We're not gonna just give you a credit card and, and just swipe it and you're done. We wanna know how much work you did and what kind of work you did, um, or we're not gonna pay you. So in 1995, they developed the Evaluation and Management Coding System. And what they did it seemed so great on paper. It was, they, they recognized doctors are taught how to interview a patient. I'm taught a system called the History of Present Illness. It, it's, it's just a structured interview and it has, the, the chief complaint, 
It has the quality of the pain a patient's mm -hmm. um, experiencing. It has the location of the pain. It's a very structured interview. Um, and so Medicare says, well, because every doctor is taught this very structured system, let's set up a billing system that's based on the same thing. So that if Dr. Hahn asks three questions from the history of present illness and two questions um, relating to the location of the patient's pain and the quality of a patient's pain, and then he asks them four questions from different body systems, well, we can actually create an algorithm that pegs certain payment levels to the number of questions that Dr. Hahn asks. Going further, we know that Dr. Hahn and every doctor is taught how to examine a patient. We're taught to look at body systems. So there's the H-E-E-N-T, head, ears, eyes, nose, throat. There's the cardiovascular system. And well, let's peg the payment system to how many body parts and how many body systems Dr. Hahn examines. And further, we know that Dr. Hahn has taught a format for, for organizing his notes called SOAP. Subjective, objective, assessment, and plan. Subjective is what the patient says. Objective is my physical exam. Assessment is my diagnosis and my thinking. And plan is what do I do, the medications I prescribe, the tests that I order, the referrals I make. Well, we'll design a system that it's, it's essentially an algorithm that the more pieces of that whole um, format that Dr. Han uses, the more he can get paid. And so they designed a system, Kevin, that is more complicated than what I do when I see a patient because the most simple visit that I do is a level, they, they have a coding system that is broken down into new patient codes, and established patient codes. For an established patient, there's five different codes, depending on the level of work that I do. For a level three, the average visit that I do, oh, I, I <laughs> You're blowing my mind, okay? Okay. So, hold on, so I own a business. I've got a few government entities that are in my pocket and that I have to have a certain kind of licensing certain kinds of insurances. There is some oversight and regulation. Most of it seems kind of logical, but it's about 120% in my business. They could cut it back a little bit. Okay, but I'm, I'm sending in a report once a year. Yeah. I'm, well, on one entity. Another entity, I'm sending in something monthly, but why even be a doctor when they're going to pay you $75 for one visit? You got to pay an administrative assistant at least a certain amount of time to take care of it. The overhead, 75 bucks isn't covering it, man. Like in my mind, it's not covering it. And you're, you're just scratching the surface on a couple freaking, just a, a basic exam. And then, and then you're being rated on the success of that patient because it's trackable no matter where that screw this man why like why bother the, a lot of doctors are asking are asking that question the challenge in my practice has been to leverage the technology so that all of this happens in the background so that i'm not bothered at every moment by this unbelievably intrusive system um because what i liken it to 
is, and, and you know, sort of the way that I wrote my book was about the different voices that were in a doctor's head. In the year 2000, or, or in medical school, before they tell you all of this horror, um, there's one voice. It's, okay, how do, I, how do I diagnose and treat a patient? That's the voice. Uh, maybe there's a second voice, and that's, I'm dealing with a human being. Every patient is a human being, and not only am I looking at them as a clinical entity, but a human being, you know? So um, those are the two good ones. And I remember the first week of my residency where this wonderful physician, I tell this story in the first chapter of the book, this wonderful physician, Dr. Lejoy, Andre, tells me about the system that I was just describing to you. And he's telling me, so a level three visit, you have to have three questions from this category. You have to, you have to um, examine five to seven body systems with 12 different points. And you have to have at least uh, moderate uh, complexity decision-making. And, but you don't want to do that because you want a level four because a level four pays $20 more than a level three. So for that one, you have to ask five questions from the history of present illness. You've got to examine four body systems with at least 12 different aspects mentioned. And you've got to, you know, examine this many body. And I thought, he's kidding. This cannot be. Um, and I, you know, it, it, it's, so, so now there's this voice as you're trying to see patients, you're literally counting the number of questions that you've asked a patient. You're counting the number of body parts that you've examined. It, it's confusing. And this is why you, you understand the title of my book is Distracted. Well, then around 2011, the Obama administration requires doctors to use computerized systems, the EMR. And unfortunately, my company comes to the to the market late, and the EMRs that get on the system uh, that, that get on the market and get market share are horrible. They are <laughs> they are more difficult to use. I mean, all of us think. And this is what, what people thought is computerization of medicine is the answer. And it's simple. It's a computer. And it turns out um, that the computer systems that doctors use today are essentially unusable. Um, they make it much more difficult to focus on a patient's information than if you didn't have a system. And I tell the story about... Um, a doctor who um, was having so much trouble logging into his system and he was running so far behind that he just started crying. Um, and so now, you have, so now you have this other voice in your head where you're looking at this computer screen and you know you, people complain, all the doctor does now is look at the computer and he never talks to me. Um, so now you've got the fourth or fifth voice, you know, that we're talking about. And so you see <laughs> that between the government, and so the government required us to use computers. They, they um, designed a program called Meaningful Use. This started in 2011, where you were paid $55,000 over five years to buy a computer system but every year you had to supply data. 
to the program. And it turned out that compiling that data was so complicated and so intensive that it took, again, so much of your focus because you had to click all these boxes. So I saw a patient and one of the measures that they want me to report on is if I, if I educated the patient about their disease. So the diabetic patient, I spent some time talking about how we approach diabetic care. We talked about um, appropriate meal planning. We talked about the need for exercise. We talked about how to use the medications properly. Each one of those things, the government says, well, you need to supply data about that you did that, so you have to click an extra box each time you did it. So not only now are you doing your job with a patient, interacting with them as a human being, thinking what the insurance companies aren't covering, so you have to work around that, thinking because the government requires me to um, uh, compile this algorithm just to get paid for that day. So now I'm thinking, how many questions did I ask this patient? I'm using this computer because it's required by the government, but it's so, it's so confusing just to use that computer that I can barely focus on what the patient's saying. And now I'm clicking extra boxes so I can, so I can supply data to the government and the insurance companies to report on all of these things it's impossible to take care of patients. Okay, Dr. Matt, <laughs> you have established thoroughly a pain point in the system. I have to ask, or I'll just state, I assume the only people who are enjoying this system, this way the system works, has to be A, maybe insurance companies, B, software writers, C, the salesman who's selling the system to the government and ultimately, it's a big jumbled mess, and I am hyper frustrated just understanding what is probably 3% of the problem that you probably could go into far more detail on. So you're running for Congress. Well, so let me get, so let me get to that. So well, no, 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 let, let, me, let me piece it in my brain first, and okay. then you can re-dissect it, okay? So be, because what I need to know is, Ah, uh, crap. So you have to assume lobbyists are working with groups to influence people who are in power and make decisions. The lobbyists are pushing for the most profitable or influential path there. They're dealing with people, maybe your competitors, maybe um, people who definitely are either, I'm a, I guess I can say whatever I want to, maybe too old, don't understand everything you just said and they're being swayed to make a decision who are young and have zero experience and they're going to go on whatever the think tank brings to them right that kind of thing so literally we need about 40 versions of you who understand this in office to make decisions to help begin to turn the tide on such a massive system am i kind of piecing that together you're getting there, and okay. and it's and and yeah. it's my progression to getting so desperate that I'm running for office. So yeah. so I say first of all, I come to politics through healthcare, and now now you know why. So starting around 2015, 
I just became so frustrated with what was happening. And we all think it's, it's that we don't, you know, what's the, the, how do we reform healthcare? That's the national conversation. And, and I said, the national conversation goes in about two different directions. It's, should we have a single payer system or should we, you know, maintain some version of this multi-payer insurance system that we have? And you never hear the conversation that I, that we just had. So it's missing so much of the detail that it's almost a pointless conversation. So around 2015, 2016, I started writing about this because I assumed the problem is no one understands this story that I just started telling you. So I wrote that book and it, and it got published and um, enough. And I started blogging about it. I started writing a weekly uh, blog around these topics and doctors were reading it, you know, uh, and it was very popular. And ultimately, I guess a, a group of doctors um, started coalescing around a lot of these ideas. And we went down to DC together. We were invited by members of Congress to talk about these ideas. And I would do lectures based on what you just heard. And nothing would happen. You would speak to members of Congress and, and you, you come to understand they are not listening from the perspective of, oh, that's very interesting. I'm going to fix those things. It's not their perspective. It, it, it's not the goal. Um, and so we spoke to bureaucrats. We spoke to, to members of Congress. Um, they're not focused on fixing these issues. And so you start to think, well, okay, so what's driving the system if it's not understanding the system, if it's not fixing the system, well, it seems like it's these things like the money being paid into the campaigns um, by the industry. It's the, the ideas behind all this bureaucracy, um, you know, so the government bureaucrats um, and the campaign finance. And I just got so frustrated with that experience where I felt like, man, I put this all down in a way that I don't think anybody has ever put it down before. I think the book is even entertaining in some ways. Um, as, as you know, imposing as the material is, I tried to make it entertaining and funny, but it's not getting better. It's never getting better. And there's just this, you know, yelling that's going on in the federal government. And this, and last summer, I just broke. There were a number of cases that finally broke me. <laughs> and um, there was one evening, I think it was last June, um, a gentleman I'd known for years came in with his wife. And, and these patients have told me I can tell these stories. Um, so I, you know, I'm free to write about them and tell them. And this gentleman comes in. Um, with his wife, history of a heart attack about 10 years earlier. Um, great guy, small businessman, but um, 64 years of age, that's very important, no insurance. But when you get 65, you get Medicare. And he was a month from the age of 65. He comes in and he says, Dr. Hahn, for the last you know month or so, every time I exert myself, I've been getting pain in my chest and tightness in my chest and you know well hey you know 
we understand what's going on. You're, you're at risk for your next heart attack. It's not a difficult moment, medically speaking. You haven't had that heart attack. I'm going to send you to the hospital right now. We'll diagnose it. We'll fix it. Because we work miracles today. The, that's what we do. Uh, Dr. Hahn, I'm not going. No way. What do you mean? I don't have insurance. I, I can't afford that. And I am not doing that to my family. I will not go to the hospital. But if you don't go to the hospital, you might die. Dr. Hahn, just keep me alive till I get Medicare. That's, that's what you're here to do tonight. And I'm not, going, I'm not going to the hospital. I said, yeah, well, I don't have a way to do that, unfortunately. And you know, I'll change a medicine, but there's no guarantee that what I do is effective. And he said, doc, I understand. Just do what you can. And so here we are. This isn't a difficult medical moment. Right down the road, I've got a hospital that can fix this guy. But we're denying him care. And we're putting him in this awful position where he is weighing the value of his life against the cost of health care. And it puts me in this awful position where rather than, again, fulfilling my oath, I have to sit there and with him, you know, balance these, the value of his existence on the planet when I know what to do for him. I hate that moment. Not two weeks later, a woman comes in, farmer. Um, she and her husband own a farm. History of high blood pressure, hasn't been to see me in years. No insurance. And she comes in because for the last week she's feeling awful. And we check her blood pressure. And it's just, I think it was like 220 over 120, very high blood pressure. And again, hey, I got to send you to the hospital. Um, no, Dr. Hahn, I am not going. Well, here's the problem. If I just put you on medicine, first of all, if, if, if I don't get your blood pressure under control quickly enough, you could have a stroke. But if I just give you, you know, pills and send you home and your blood pressure falls too quickly, you could also have a stroke. This needs to be managed in an intensive care unit. It's not difficult. We have medicines, we dial in, we bring your blood pressure down very gradually. Dr. Hahn, I can't do it. I'm not gonna, we can't spend that money. Once again, here I am with this wonderful family and we are forced into this horrible circumstance where we have to weigh the value of her life against the excessive cost of you know, readily available medical care. I, beyond frustration. And again, to think that, that I'm being, that my, the quality of my care is being measured. You know, so, so blood pressures are being measured and I'm paid based on the, you know, the level of blood pressures of my patients in my practice. And yet there's no way I can get them the care that they need in this system. And it broke me. It just broke me. And I said, you know, I, I can't take this anymore and I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, politicians are busy yelling at one another and fighting with one another. And these people 
are suffering. And it's the year 2020. Miracles at my fingertips. We know so much more about taking care of patients today than even when I started out 20 years ago. And these, these treatments, these, these diagnostics are readily available. And yet people are suffering, they're going bankrupt, they're dying at the hands of this broken system that never gets better. And all our leaders seem to be able to do is fight with one another. And you know, I'm just sick of it. And so I decided to run based on those two experiences and, and these years of developments that I told you about. I can't say it enough how much I love my podcast because it brings things to the surface that I had no freaking clue about. Okay. And there's your stories are so convincing. They're so compelling. I, I hate to hear about those two families that have to choose um, one or the other. And, I, and then I hate it for you because you have that personal connection to all your patients. You, you, in the style of treatment that your practice provides, you take it even harder than just somebody who's processing the numbers. These are my people. Yeah, and, and then reflecting on why you wanted to be a doctor in the first place. Now, my version of a doctor, right? Oh, here he comes again. My version on a doctor is what you see on Grey's Anatomy, ER, Chicago Hope. There's no sitcom that shows the amount of freaking paperwork, not even paperwork, computer work. But now I know why they're asking me questions, not looking me in the eye, and literally just click, 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 and just work in this little mobile computer. And it all just seems normal to me. But the sheer quagmire of what's happening behind the scenes, it breaks my freaking head. Now, here's what I need, man. And, and I had this whole list of how I was going to go down this podcast interview. And thank you for taking the lead because your way is way better than mine. When you win, how are you taking like a team of frustrated doctors with you? Are you going to go and how are you going to convince people? How are you going to turn the tide? Or are there people or mentors ahead of you already doing it? Well, let me tell you one other piece of the pie. Because oh, then there's, because, well, because then there's the politics. Okay. So, so and, 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 you know, what, what you're experiencing is just what I've gone through in 25 years, where I came into the system just full of hope. You know, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a doctor in the greatest healthcare system in the world. And, you know, and I'm a doctor. <laughs> it's great. I mean, um, uh, I'm Jewish. My, my parents, when, when, uh, when I was in a rock and roll band, they, were, um, uh, they weren't chagrined. But let's just say that it wasn't what they had wanted for me. And when I went to medical school, oh, my God, I remember when I graduated, uh, and I turned around, I was walking on a street outside of GW, and I had my, my daughter was a little baby, I was pushing the stroller, and I turn around, and I see my mom's face, and the smile on her face was so broad, and I was like, oh, okay, all right, mom. <laughs> She's, you know, my son's a doctor. And, you know, this is what I thought I was getting involved in, and it turned out to be what I'm telling you. And so then the question is, how do we change? things. And how come 
when we know all this? How come when I can write that book, but, but how come when we've solved the major challenges, you know, the, the, the real problems in medicine were how do we diagnose and treat patients? And we've made these unbelievable breakthroughs and you think that's the idea, that that's all you needed. And you think, well, we've got computers, this is easy. How come it's getting harder? How come it gets worse and worse? Um, and so how do you change the system? And I had another breakthrough moment, a whole other thread I haven't been talking about. So um, I'll tell you one other story and, and it touches on the theme of division in America and division in American politics. So um, last summer, well, let me, let me set the stage. You're familiar with the, the rock wall plant that's being built. And there are two sides fighting about this. There are the people that say, hey, we need jobs. Um, and this is a, a plant that's opening up that's gonna have a, a 120 or 125 good paying jobs, I think. And uh, there's nothing more important than that. We need this. And then there are people on the other side that say, well, we don't trust companies like this to, um, to police themselves. And they're working with these chemicals and they could endanger our water or our children. And there are great examples of this happening. Um, that's concerning. Um, and let's see the rest of the stage. Oh, there's a representative Espinoza in probably in your district. And last summer, um, he accepts a job with the Rockwell company. And that kind of bothers me because conflict of interest is a really, really important issue. And especially in medicine, where we talk about um, conflict of interest all the time. If, if a doctor is a researcher and you know, does a study, who paid for that study? Is he working for a pharmaceutical company? And my generation of physicians was taught, you've got to be very careful about your conflicts. And so I'm a physician who, if I wanted to, pharmaceutical companies come to my office almost every day. And if I wanted, I could be taking lunches, trips, all sorts of things. And, you know, to, to the point where I could be literally bringing in thousands of dollars of value into my practice every year. And I refuse to do that. Those pharmaceutical reps are not allowed past the front window. I accept no gifts. I accept no meals, nothing. Because my integrity when I'm in a room with a patient is one of the most important things to me. And if a patient felt that I prescribed a medicine because I had had lunch <laughs> with the rep for that drug the day before, that would horrify me. So, and, and, and here in, in the campaign finance system of this country, we have allowed this whole concept of conflict of interest to be bastardized. We have a political system that essentially functions on conflict of interest. It bothers me a great deal. So last summer, Representative Espinoza takes a job with the Rockwell Company that really bothers me because I think there's some real big conflicts right there. So the rest of the scene is 
My wife asks me to build a patio last summer. I was building the patio. It was 98 degrees every day last summer. And my mother-in-law, my dear mother-in-law who lives in Shepherdstown, had an operation on her knee and she needed dinner that Saturday night. I had worked all day on the patio. I was tired, I was hungry, I was hot. My wife and I drive into Shepherdstown to pick up dinner for my mother-in-law after this long day. And there's a protest taking place. On the left side of the road are the anti-Rockwell people. On the right side of the road are the pro-Rockwell people and they're holding up Espinoza signs. We favor this idea. Not only do we think that jobs are important, we're glad that Representative Espinoza has taken this job. That just flipped my switch in a way that my switch has not been flipped before. I park the car, I run to the biggest guy holding an Espinosa sign and I start yelling at him. <laughs> and about 30 seconds in, I realize, Dr. Matt, you're an idiot. <laughs> this is stupid. You don't do this. This is dumb. Don't yell at this guy. You're defeating your own purpose. You're doing something you shouldn't be doing. I stopped. Um, <laughs> I, I went across the street and some people, you know, I talked to some of the anti-Rockwell people and I, I apologized to them for doing what I did. And I went back to the fella who I yelled at and I apologized to him. And I said, you know what, I'm really sorry. That was stupid, but I want you to understand why I'm really passionate about this and let's talk about it. And we did. And it wasn't a great conversation, but we did talk about it. And I came away from that moment realizing there's a disease in this country, this whole division that has taken hold where you're either left or you're right, you're Democrat, you're Republican, you're you know, conservative, you're liberal, it's become a disease and now I've got it too, to the point where a rational, caring individual is running up to people and yelling at them, almost getting into a fight. And I realized this has to stop. This is not working for us and it's, 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 a, it's viral. I've got to run for office and I'm gonna do it in a way that attacks the problem, the, the, the root problem of why healthcare is never getting fixed. And it is, it is all of the things that create division in this country. Um, and that's how I got to that final moment where, you know, all, all, of the re all of the great reasons that you shouldn't run for Congress, I said, I don't care anymore, I'm running. I'm running because my patients mean a great deal to me. I'm running because my daughter and my daughter's generation mean a great deal to me. And um, the American dream has died for that generation. And it's died for a lot of people. And they're so angry over things like that, that, that they're, you know, they deride each other in such awful ways. Um, and it's got to stop. We, we are going down a path in this country where this division is creating, it's taking over everything. It means that we don't 
fix health care. It means that um, people don't get good jobs. It means we do nothing about the opioid crisis that's been raging in our community for years. We don't do a thing. Um, it means we don't fix roads and bridges. It means that this generation, my daughter's generation, may never own a home, um, may never have retirement. Um, who knows if, if they'll ever have health care, maybe, you know, um, we've got to fix this. And, 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 I, and I bring together all the different threads where I say, you know, look at health care. We're capable of miracles. And yet, somehow we have figured out how to withhold those miracles from our patients. Um, the technology that we have today, the fact that you and I are talking over <laughs> this, we're capable of anything. And yet the division has gotten us to a point where we're getting nothing done. And, and I said in my, in my opening speech, in my announcement speech, the United States of America was once the nation that could do anything. You think about the fact, you know, we won World War II, we go to the moon. And, and growing up in that country, so much pride. We're, you know, we can do anything. And same thing in healthcare. And yet this division where we approach every issue as two sides that are going to fight one another to the death has gridlocked our nation. Nothing is changing. We're getting nothing done and it is endangering us. And so I announced my candidacy in December. And one of the things I talked about was that gridlock is endangering us. Um, and we've really, rather than, you know, fighting one another tooth and nail over every issue, we've got to figure out ways to get along. And, um, you know, I looked, I looked in an interesting place to try to figure out how I was going to approach this campaign, how I was going to talk to people, because the last thing I want to do, because I, I, first of all, I don't like doing it, and I also think it's ineffective, is just list the, you know, five issues that are important to me and say, I'm for this, I'm against that, I'm for that, I'm against that, and you just, you know, see which ones, which of those issues you agree most with, you know, do I align with your checks and you vote for me? That's not effective politics anymore. And also it's, it's not a way to win. Um, and so I thought, how am I going to talk to people in a different way? How am I going to get elected um, so that we can change these things? Because with our current leadership, nothing's changing. And the current leadership style, nothing's changing. And I looked to, uh, to the Bible <laughs> because it seems like such an integral part of so many people's experience. Um, and some basic, basic lines, you know, in, in the Bible. Um, uh, uh, House divided against itself will not stand. Um, Jesus says that, you know, my most important commandment, love thy neighbor as yourself. These are the answers, <laughs> these basic answers. And if we don't get to a point where we are operating on that level, we will never fix the challenges of the 21st century. And then we come to 
the coronavirus, <laughs> which is the perfect example of how broken our current approach is, that we, we hit a challenge that our system is not up to, that despite the fact that we understand the nature of this virus, that we, um, you know, we, we, we can bring all sorts of amazing things to bear um, across the spectrum, not just in diagnosing and treating the virus. We can't do it. Our system, our, our institutions are not up to the task. And we're in danger because of it. And we're divided. It's terrible. We, and, and if we don't change, we face losing so many things we value, even our lives. Dr. Matt, your passion is on point. That's the, I love hearing it. I love hearing the passion. I, I love all the motivations you've got. Um, you've given me so much to think about. For a second, let's talk about the logistics of running. Um, I saw your name was on a list that you're not taking, um, what's, what's, what's the word, like campaign funding? Yeah, from uh, a super, super PAC money. So you're, you could be eligible for super PAC money, but you choose not to because you believe that's part of the problem. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's, we were a nation that was formed out of values. And we have forsaken <laughs> those values. Like I, I talked about, conflict of interest. Um, and, and it is both wrong from a values perspective, but it's also destroyed the system where um, our elected leaders do what those with the most money tell them to do. And it's, you know, for the most part, it's not a damn thing. So, if I'm going to run for office, I'm going to do it the right way, where at the top of the pyramid of the things that I'm thinking about, it's values. And I'm going to uphold those values. So no, I'm not going to take um, corporate or super PAC money. And it definitely means that I won't have the kind of money that um, a lot of politicians raise and that they base their campaigns upon. But I don't care. And, uh, and you and I met uh, <laughs> when, um, when I was beginning the, the, the brunt of my campaign. Um, uh, I decided, I, I thought long and hard about this. In fact, I, I had a, um, a Tom Cruise uh, show me the money moment. What was, what's that, what, what was that movie? McGuire. Oh, Jerry Maguire. I had a Jerry Maguire uh, moment in mid-January um, after I had announced my campaign. And I, you know, I was starting to, to try to raise money. And, you know, I'm a full-time physician. And I have to be a full-time physician. Um, I can't abandon my patients for this run. And I was, you know, I was spending every moment making phone calls, trying to raise money. And I was raising money, but, you know, not nearly the amount that, that, um, most politicians raise. And one night I really just, I was up all night, just, you know, like, like Tom Cruise was in, the, in Jerry Maguire, you know, feverish thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? 
Um, and a few things, I guess, came to me. Um, one, one is the notion, you know, I'm running against Alex Mooney and um, what people say to me about Mr. Mooney more than anything, and, and, and I'm not here to deride Alex, I'm not here to tell you bad things about him. That's not what I'm going to do. I don't like it. It's not, I will not negative campaign. This is about what I want to do um, rather than me telling you, you know, anything bad about him. But what people say is we never see him. He's been in office eight years. I've never met him. I was doing, actually, the, the night that I was up all night, I was doing a press tour in Charleston. And every member of the press I met said, he's been in office eight years. We met you first. <laughs> Where does and, he live? What's that? Where does he live? Uh, Harper's Ferry, I believe. Oh, so one town away from he's me. Your I've neighbor. never seen him either. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I decided, well, there's an answer. Um, I'm a runner. <laughs> I'm going to run the entire district. I'm running door to door. <laughs> and that's both because it's free. All, all, all I need is my own, you know, energy, and I've got lots of it, and my passion, and my message, and um, it's free. <laughs> so, so that so, was my answer. So here's the deal: when it comes to fundraising, you need funds. So our ARP and I, and on this podcast, I can flash up throughout your story what link to click on if people want to donate to your campaign is that sure. something we want to absolutely so, so, sure. so i assume you have a page set up like a web page that allows people to donate there all right good matt, so we'll put we'll, we'll put matt that in the, in the, dash han for congress.com <laughs> okay yeah we'll put that in the show notes for for sure yeah um but look dr matt it, you've given us so much to chew on this is this has been this has been the least I've spoken in any podcast, frankly. It's, it's been I awesome. I apologize. No, 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 don't apologize. It's been a constant stream of education, which is what I, I'm thirsty for. So I, I, we've covered every topic I wanted to cover besides one. And that is explain to people listening who's voting for you as in okay. the district, like we already said, you're being, you're primarying against Alex Mooney. Right. Um, and he has the budget for commercials, I guess, and signs and all that sort of stuff. But he's, I mean, I don't know how to get a hold of him. And if he's not talking to anybody, no one's ever seen him, then I'm, I'm probably not going to get a hold of him to be on my podcast. But um, please explain to us how the district works and who is going to be voting for you during the primary. Right. So. This is the United States Congress, West Virginia, second district. West Virginia has three U.S. congressional districts. This is the second district, which extends from Harper's Ferry on the east all the way across the state, a narrow strip all the way across the state through the eastern panhandle um, and all the way to Charleston. Oh, wow. It's a very long, so it's a 300-mile-plus district. Um, and this is the primary. So, of course, we have a Republican and a Democratic primary. The people who can vote for me in the primary um, are either Republicans or independents because we get either a Republican or a Democratic ballot. 
And an independent in the state of West Virginia has to say which ballot they want. And so I'm hoping that lots of independents say, I want the uh, Republican ballot. Um, and, you know, in the choice between Han and Mooney, I choose Han. So Republicans and independents can vote in the Republican primary. And if I win the primary, then it goes to the general. That's a very good answer. Thank you for that. And then it's a unique situation right now because everybody's requesting their um, vote from home right. um, ballots. So you have to kind of know ahead of time which one you want. And I find that a little bit archaic because I might want to vote on the Republican side for some of the categories and the Democratic on some of the other categories. Maybe one day this system won't be so um, difficult and antiquated, but I get one challenging system at a time, Dr. Matt. Right. At a time. Um, but look, I, I'd like, I, I think we can wrap this up. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you really want to let us know about? And it can be a long story. I'm just saying, I don't know where to go next with this besides encouraging people to, to look at this podcast. Um, you know, talking about the, the division, I think, is really, really important. Um, we need to really think about this because so many people, and, and this is on, you know, this is on both sides. If there are, you know, just two sides, um, it, this is on both sides that we have gotten to a point where our views invalidate the other side's views. And let's say we're close to, you know, split 50-50. Um, first of all, as I said, this has gotten dangerous. You know, we, we can't get health care. So if you have a health care issue pop up, you know, people die over the fact that we have a broken system. But, you know, this animosity that we've developed for one another, um, it, it's not going in a good place. Um, you know, it's, it's almost as if we're having a bloodless civil war where, um, you know, anything that somebody says that's identified with one side, the other side automatically invalidates, almost like, you know, you don't count. I won't listen to you. This goes in a very bad um, direction for this country. But, but even more than that, it means that we never, we're never going to be up to the challenges of the 21st century. If, even if, uh, you know, let's say the Democratic presidential candidate wins, well, then all that happens is the Republicans line up on the other side and do everything they can to invalidate everything that Democratic president does. And then the next time the Republican president wins and the Democrats line up on the other side and try to invalidate everything that, and this isn't working for us. This means that we're not taking on the challenges of globalization. We're not fixing healthcare. We're not educating kids. We can't even agree whether or not we have climate change. Um, and, and really, we're busy fighting 20th century problems and, and we're using 20th century ideas and institutions. And the 21st century is 20 years old and we ain't up to it. 
and it endangers us as individuals. It's endangering our country. It endangers our place in the world. You think that that a, a country like Russia or China doesn't notice that we, um, in, in the face of this virus, that, that all we're doing is devolving into a brawl? They notice. <laughs> And, and this is not good for us. Um, you know, let, let's say there, it's not just a viral challenge, but let's say there's a military challenge to this country. We got to work together. If we do not work together, if we don't find ways to work together, what I, what I talk about is we have to look at issues not in ways that help our side win or help our, um, my ideology win. We have to look at issues in ways that both uphold our values and enable us to move forward together. Um, if we don't do that, um, we, we stand to lose so many things that we value. Um, and we've got to get past that. That's, that's why I'm running. That's how I'm running. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be successful, but I'm not going to be the person who didn't do anything. Um, and I'm not going to be the person who just lines up on one side anymore because last summer I learned, you know, that it, it's, it's not good for me. It's not good for anybody. Um, and again, we know so many things today. We live in an age of miracles, right? You know, in, in, in healthcare and everything, once the world was dominated by scarcity. So you had cancer 100 years ago, sorry about your luck. But today, I can diagnose it, I can treat it, and yet I can't give you any better care than the people got 100 years ago. Um, if we put our minds to it, if we learn to get along and we you know, maximized the, our capabilities, we could do anything. We could have a society of miracles. Um, we're not doing it. And, and, if, and if we don't figure out how to do it, we, head down, we continue heading down this very, very bad path. And it's not just going to be you know, the virus, as I said. So the, my campaign theme, together we stand. God has given us a very simple task. We got to love one another. We do that, we can do anything. That's great, Dr. Matt. What uh, events or any sort of uh, Zooms or Facebook Lives or anything like that do you have scheduled or coming up? Or where can we find more information about those? Well, so yeah, head, head to my Facebook page, head to my um, website, matt-hanforcongress.com. So um, M-A-T-T dash H-A-H-N-F-O-R-C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S, hanforcongress.com. And also, um, as an expression of, uh, of my commitment to working together, um, what you'll be able to see on Facebook upcoming is um, a Facebook Live race uh, on May 30th. Um, Kathy Kunkel, my Democratic opponent, and I have decided to team up. Um, rather, again, rather than tearing her down, I'm not going to tear her down. She's a she's a very nice person, um, and we're working together to raise money to fight childhood hunger um, 
because of the COVID-19 outbreak um, and kids being home, the boys and girls clubs of the Eastern Panhandle are feeding three times the normal, or providing three times the normal number of meals to kids uh, every week. And Kathy and I have decided to do a fundraiser, um, and that fundraiser culminates in a running race. Uh, at the end of the month, we're running one mile uh, at Morgan Grove Park. It's gonna be Facebook Live uh, event, and uh, I think I'm gonna win. Um, I, uh, I've been training pretty hard. Uh, I've got my, I've got my mile time down to on a good day, a seven minute mile, which is, that's really good for me. Um, I've been running for years and, um, I'm a great runner, but a really, really slow, slow runner. <laughs> so tell me, you know, you're in a running group. I started a running group. We have hundreds in my running group. I'd love to see that event and then promote it inside my group, I think they'd love to come out to something like that and not only support you, but run beside you and encourage you. Well, except for social distancing. So I don't know. Yeah, see, this, this affects everything. So my door-to-door my -door campaigning uh, had to stop. And that's why this is a Facebook Live event. We want people to donate because we want to, we're shooting for at least $10,000, but I think we could raise much, much more. Um, and yeah, get involved. Uh, if you go to my Facebook page, Matt Hahn for Congress, uh, you can see the, the donation link. If you go to the Boys and Girls Clubs of the Eastern Panhandle uh, website, um, there's a donate link. And there's a great video that we put together um, highlighting the shock and horror that both Kathy and I experienced when we learned that we share some things in common, despite the fact that I'm a Republican and she's a Democrat, we found out that we both love running, which was, I, I didn't know that the two sides could have anything in common. And <laughs> neither of us likes the idea of hungry children. So I was shocked to find out that Republicans and Democrats share certain views that they can agree upon and even work together. Now we're racing and I believe I'm going to beat her. In fact, I think it's genetically impossible for a Democrat to beat me in a race like this. I, I believe. Um, I could be wrong. But, um, but uh, it's a good video that we put together highlighting these, the shock and horror that we both experienced in learning that we both care about um, children and neither of us likes them going hungry. <laughs> I look forward to sharing that, that link. I'll definitely put it in there. Dr. Matt, thank you so much for being on the Break It Down for Brackens podcast. I have been so educated today. This has been so frustrating, but so enlightening at the same time. So thank you very much for being on. Um, again, I'll put all the links uh, and in the uh, show notes and whatnot. And again, feel free to share this as many times as you want to prior and in any venue as well. I mean, this is for you to use as well. And, and you've really done a great job of communicating probably a small percentage of the frustrations the, that you guys have. So um, I think that wraps it up. All right. Thank you Thank very you much. Kevin. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. You too. This podcast is brought to you by City National Bank in Ransom, West Virginia. I am Melissa Knott and manage both of our Jefferson County locations. 
Our Charlestown location is located on George Street in Charlestown and the Ransom location is located in the Potomac Marketplace Shopping Center. City National Bank is a full-service community bank that provides an array of financial services. We offer a range of free checking accounts and savings products for both consumer and business customers. City National Bank offers competitive low-rate and low-cost lending products for both business and personal needs. Come and talk to me or one of my team members and get products and services that are tailored to fit your schedule and help you to achieve your financial goals. I can be reached at both the Ransom and Charlestown locations. Check out our website at www.bankatcity.com. Have you heard of Bracken's Painting? I started Bracken's Painting back in 2011. We do both residential and commercial painting. We have contractors licenses in West Virginia and Virginia, and we carry all the necessary insurances, like workers' comp, general liability. Uh, we operate a small staff that focuses on meeting the homeowner's needs and project manager's timeline expectations. Uh, we, pri we try to have exceptional attention to detail. If you're interested in doing any sort of commercial or residential painting, please contact Bracken's Painting. More information can be found at www.brackenspainting.com.